Hello and welcome to Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. I'm Mark. And I'm Bethan. Thank you for joining us once again, everybody. Um, yeah, it's not going to be very cheery after Mark's two-parter last week, which was quite harrowing. It's not going to be cheery again. So shall we do our cheeriest part of the episode and say thank you to our new Patreon supporters? I think we should, because it's definitely downhill from here, because when I just opened your notes, uh, it's entitled Family Annihilators. And I was like, oh, this is cheery. Yeah. Um, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, everyone. Okay, so thank you to all of our Patreon supporters, of course. Uh, Particularly, we would like to thank our newest supporters. So they are Ruth Hayes, Sarah Adams, Joe, Lauren Walker, Gemma, Lynn Crino callahan Claire Bragg, Jane Burwood, Loz Davidson, Fiona Dillon, and Karen Moiser. Thank you to each and every one of you. Thank you, as I said, to all of our existing supporters. Well over a thousand of you have signed up to support us on Patreon since we started seeing Red. We can't believe that. We are blown away by your support. It means so much to us. If you are able to support us and you want to, all you need to do is head over to patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast. And there are 45 bonus episodes over there. 45, that's a lot. 45 and 35 episodes of our Patreon exclusive podcast Crime Waves to binge. So, yeah, loads um, going on. That's a season and a sixth, if we're going by this season. Yes, correct. (laughs) <laughs> there you go. So yeah, lots uh, lots going on. So yeah, patreon.com slash seeingwebpodcast. Yeah, huge thank you everybody. I'm just going to echo what Mark said, but thank you very much. This week, as Mark said, we are going to be diving into a couple of cases that relate to the kind of concept of family annihilators. Whilst it is, of course, absolutely devastating when someone is killed, and we've discussed time and time again, the people who are left behind grieving for their loved one... There's something even more shocking, isn't there, when it's an entire family unit that's wiped out in one go. Yeah, and I I think it just goes back decades and decades, probably centuries. It's been happening for forever and it it continues to happen and you think it's it's the most barbaric act for usually a man to commit because usually it is the man in that family, the husband, the father, and you just kind of think when it happens you sort of think how how does this still happen? And it does, and it will happen again, and that's what's so shocking about it, really. Yeah, a hundred percent. And this got me thinking back to cases like the murder of the entire Mayazawa family in Japan, or the murder of six people in 1922 at the Hinterkaifeck farm. It's always really shocking to think about, and I think for me that's because there's children included in the death toll, cases that involve the murder of a child really are the most upsetting for me these little ones that never got to experience their life but there's also times where we've looked at cases and a family member is responsible for the murder and that I don't know it's just like you said before it takes it to another level of just how is this still happening see that's what I when I think of a family annihilation I always think from within I kind of forget that actually it could be an outside party that has annihilated that family but quite often it is from within isn't it like Chris Watts for example yeah, exactly and correct. I think the most shocking thing for me is that the person that annihilates their family when it is an internal annihilation usually they have presented outwardly as completely normal for their entire life so I think that's what makes it all the more shocking when it happens yeah no one ever saw it coming and that is exactly what we're going to see with the two cases that we're going to cover today We, of course, have covered the case of Jennifer Pan in the past. She was convicted of hiring someone to attack and kill her parents. And we do know full well that most often serious assaults and murders are perpetrated at the hands of someone close to the victim. But that was a really upsetting one for me. The idea that this girl could plan this and go through with killing her parents. And of course, we've looked at parents or close family members killing a child either by accident to cover something up or through neglect. But this week we're going to be discussing what on earth causes someone to decide to take the lives of their entire family and most times their own life as well. This week we're going to be talking about quite a famous case and also a case that I'd be interested to know if people had even heard of before because I hadn't even heard of our first case until very recently when my husband mentioned it about something that he'd watched. However, our second case is Chris Watts, as you mentioned before, very, very famous. 
Familicide is defined as a type of murder or murder-suicide in which an individual kills multiple family members in quick succession. So this may may be their parents, like we saw with Jennifer Pan or Kim Edwards, one of the so-called Twilight killers, perhaps their spouse, their siblings, and most often their children. Of mass murders in the US, so that is more than four victims in a 24-hour period, familicide cases are actually the most common form which I found really interesting. You tend to have more of this type of a case than, for example, a school shooting, which I feel like people would assume would happen more often and more frequently. That's so true. I think this is much more prevalent than people perhaps realise. Yeah. And then family annihilation is when the entire family is killed. And as I mentioned before, it's, it's most common for the killer to then take their own life as well. It's one of the most incomprehensible acts a person can commit. It totally goes against the natural order and I think that's exactly where what you were saying earlier where that comes from it's just we can't get our heads around it because why like why would you wipe out your entire line Professor David Wilson so someone we love on this show was part of a paper written about this topic so a research study published in the Howard Journal of Criminal Justice in 2013 by Elizabeth Yardley who I'm sure we've referenced before as well David Wilson and Adam Lines has been particularly influential in the field. So they analysed newspaper articles over three decades from 1980 to 2012, where cases of familicide were reported. And within this, they wrote that family annihilators are usually male and usually fit into one of four profiles. So self-righteous killers hold the mother responsible for a breakdown of the family and will often call her before to explain what he's going to do. And they're quite dramatic, so they would often use a significant date, um, quite dramatic in their displays prior to the killing. So I I guess that could be custody disputes, something like that, where Mm -hmm. maybe that family unit has already broken down a little bit. Yeah, or, you know, upcoming divorce, potentially, that sort of thing. And then disappointed killers believe their families let them down and the killing could be sparked by something like children not choosing to follow their religious customs. So that kind of includes things like honour killings, for example. Anomic killers see the family as a symbol of their own economic success, but if they suffer some kind of economic failure, so bankruptcy, for example, the family no longer serves that function, so they may um, kill for kind of almost like a shame side of things. And then paranoid killers are often motivated by a desire to protect their family from a perceived threat. So having their children taken away by social services, for example. And this is the grouping in which mental illnesses can play a huge part because, you know, the paranoia is going to stem from something, whether it's a real or an imagined threat. So quite often we see those anomic killers their actions kind of show that they're someone who wants to take their family with them in a bid to spare them, like I said, from the shame. So the shame of them being a failure in some way. So if they were embarrassed about debt. And another study did show that in 2010, financial strain was the root cause of around a third of family annihilation cases. So oftentimes the outward image of the family is very normal, but behind it all, the father of the house or the man of the house gets further and further into a spiral of depressive thinking and desperation. And it's exactly like you said before, they put out this outward display of just normalcy and then internally they're just going through something so huge. Killers who fall into the self-righteous category may feel like they have to take matters into their own hands. So there might be an impending divorce or a threat of their life, the way they see their life being turned upside down in another way. And they might tend to believe that if they get rid of their family, they're going to be freed from having the the constraints of having their family um, that they have to support. So that is where Chris Watts kind of fits in is if you get rid of your family, then you don't have to then support them going forward. It's such a warped um, way of interpreting that situation, isn't it, for the killer? To sort of think, oh, this will solve the problem. It it makes no sense to us. But to them, I do understand that it does. But it's a weird concept for for us to wrap our head around. But yeah, it fits like a glove for them. And we've spoken before about how men's mental health issues can be exacerbated by societal pressures. So the idea that men shouldn't show emotion, boys don't cry, those sorts of things. 
I think as a society, we are moving away from this attitude. But when we look at cases of this nature, we must remember that there is often that expectation for the man to be the head of the house, the strong figure protecting the rest of the family. And that can cause huge amounts of pressure. Yeah, I can see that. I find it really, really hard to get my head around the motivations at play here. I can get my head around quite a few things. So, you know, an accidental killing where someone goes too far, I can understand killers for hire, even though it's not something I would want to do. I can understand it. I can understand someone who, if that's their job and they're getting paid a lot of money, it's mm. again, not something I would do, but I kind of understand, you know, someone catches you doing something that you shouldn't be doing. And in that moment you kill them or you decide to kill them so you can keep your secret. But I just can't get someone wants to break up or you're in debt and that somehow the shame of being in debt or that the realisation of someone wanting to break up with you, that's nothing compared with killing your entire family. I just cannot understand how you would ever think that the end goal is for your entire family to be taken off the earth. I I wonder if the motivation is murder-suicide. So suicide is at the heart of it, but I'm going to take the whole family out because I can't let them live with the fact that I've taken my own life. It it just, I don't know, almost reminds me a little bit of, I can't remember the name, but um, I can't remember what I called it, but the episode where the French pilot uh, threw the plane into the side of the Alps and killed everybody on board. That was pretty much a confirmed case of murder-suicide. And he was so intent on taking his own life. He was so angry with the entire world that he wanted to take everybody else out as well. And that's maybe a slightly different motivation. But with a family, I just wonder if suicide is the primary motivation for the killer. And secondary to that is that I'm going to take the family with me. Hmm. Yeah, We'll never know, I guess. No, this is it. So the study that was published in 2013 also stated the following. In contrast to other groups such as serial killers and mass murderers, the family annihilators were found to be individuals with good backgrounds. They were not known to the police or the criminal justice system. They often had good jobs, families and friends around them. They can be very successful people in their lives and not the kind of person who it is perceived would ever kill anyone never mind their entire family. So this week, um, of the four suggested profiles, we're going to be looking at a paranoid killer and then also that self-righteous category as well. So Peter Keller was born on the 5th of February in 1967 in what has been described as an ordinary family. He was raised in the picturesque Washington town of North Bend and Keller spent most of his early life surrounded by the lush greenery and serene landscapes of the Pacific Northwest. North Bend is a city on the outskirts of the Seattle metropolitan area and it was made famous by the TV show Twin Peaks, which was partially filmed there, which I have seen. I did not know this. I didn't know that until I started researching this. Recreationally, North Bend is popular for people interested in hiking, backpacking, mountain biking, cross-country skiing and snowboarding. And Keller's childhood spent in the countryside offered him the opportunity to really develop those outdoorsy skills. As he developed into adulthood, he kind of enjoyed a lot of time just spent out in the woods. He would hike on trails, but probably quite importantly to this case, maybe it is, maybe it isn't actually, but a lot of time spent on his own. Um, I, I was just going to say, how often have we seen this where you've got a killer in childhood role-playing in the woods on their own army games or just spending a lot of time on their own out in nature? And I'm not saying that every child that does that is going to turn into be a killer, turn out to be a killer, but it's a common denominator that we see in a lot of cases where men go on to kill that... I don't know, just living in their own world, uh, making up games by themselves, not mixing with other children. And I just, yeah, I just picture them in army clothes, running around in the woods, pretending to run away and chase people and stuff like that. Well, I mean, I don't know anything as to whether or not he did do any, like, dress up, but I completely get where you're coming from, that you could imagine this. But then maybe that makes sense because... You've got society which is completely bonkers and you're kind of trying to just, you just want that nice happy life where you're just in control of your own destiny in the woods. So I yeah, can understand why that to, might 
you're, you're creating a bubble for yourself, trying to mm-hmm. make sense of the world that doesn't make sense to you. So you yeah. make your own world. Friends and acquaintances described Keller as a reserved and introverted individual. But Keller met and married a woman called Lynette Keller. So, well, obviously she wasn't called Lynette Keller at the time. I can't remember what her her maiden name was. But Lynette and they got married. They welcomed a daughter, Kayleen, into the world. By all accounts, the Kellers were a typical family living a normal life. By the time of our case this week in 2012, Kayleen was 18 or 19 years old. Reports do vary. She had a boyfriend that she loved. She really enjoyed video game designing. She actually had a job testing video games and she wanted to study at a technological institute which had a reputation for being a leader in education and research of computer technologies. And when I started looking at it, I was like, oh, wow, that's quite fun. And then I thought, actually, this was probably like the dawn of really amazing gaming at this point. And for a young woman to be so mm-hmm. keen on that and pursuing yeah. that uh, professionally or semi-professionally, well, that would have been, she would have been an absolute groundbreaker for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mum Lynette was at this point 41 years old. She was close with her mum, her sister and her twin brother. And she's been described as a caring and a wonderful woman. And the family recorded a lot of home videos. Peter Keller was keen to make videos documenting key parts of their lives, including things like his daughter's graduation, for example. Again, something really, really normal that you would imagine most families do. And you Hmm. generally, genuinely, you would look at these videos And you would think they were just a a normal, the perfect family, you know, mum and dad and this daughter. But there were other video blogs being made by Keller, videos where he discussed his ever-growing paranoia about doomsday scenarios and a YouTube channel on which he uploaded his videos showing his prepping and planning and his survivalist lifestyle. So in the videos, Keller expanded on his apocalyptic beliefs. He showcased his meticulously constructed underground bunker, And he shared tips on survivalist tactics. And we're going to return to those video diaries in a little bit. As the years passed, Keller's demeanour began to change, with his friends and family noticing a marked difference in him. Whilst he'd apparently always been reasonably reserved and quite happy about it, he began to withdraw from a lot more of his social activities. Fixating on his survivalist tactics, Keller began... I told you, I knew it, look... Yeah. survivalist tactics yeah which i reckon would have started in childhood yeah building your dens and stuff yeah so keller began prepping an underground bunker that he constructed in the woods near his house began stockpiling and making provisions to make it clear this isn't just some like little wood near his house so mark i've put some photos below for you Um, So this is North Bend, Washington. There's a mountain which looms over the city, which is called Mount Si, and that's about 1,270 metres at its highest point. It's beautiful though, isn't it, when you look at it? It's stunning. I mean, this isn't, I kind of think of a wood or a wooded area in this country, I don't know, might be 10 acres or something. This is multiple square miles. This is yeah. Yeah, like I, I don't even know how many square miles, maybe... Uh, hundreds but yeah it's massive isn't it and stunning and remote and then the second picture is then rattlesnake ridge which is the specific area in which he built the bunker but i say specific area it's still again vast yeah over the space of around eight years keller painstakingly dug out from underneath the hill creating for himself a two-level bunker which had inside of it a wood stove, ventilation, and even a water pipe that brought him water from a nearby stream. The location was off of any known trails, and he had sawed heavy timber by hand and used pulleys to get them to his bunker where he then nailed or bolted them down. There was even an electrical system inside that Keller had connected to a generator. This isn't just like a bit of a log cabin. A den or something, yeah. It is like proper. And was this underground, did you say? Underground. Yeah, and this is Completely like this is two, two subterranean levels yep. underground of sophisticated, yeah, it's weird, but I kind of applaud him in a way. Yeah, How many it's people incredible. could do that whilst keeping up the day job and a family life and not let on what you're actually doing? I completely agree. It's incredible that he managed to build this. And you're right, he 
he continued that daily life. He continued his daily routines. He didn't entirely distance himself from his wife and daughter. He managed to maintain the facade of normalcy, even whilst becoming increasingly consumed by a fear of an impending apocalypse. So his wife's brother later said that Keller was a very quiet individual who had a loving relationship with his daughter Kayleen, and Lynette's family genuinely didn't see any signs of trouble within the family. But behind the scenes, for at least weeks, but probably for years, Peter Keller had been planning that he would need to kill his wife and their daughter, and he even stated that he knew that he might have to take his own life. The actual reason for why is, is unknown, and trying to apply logic to a scenario like this is going to be a bit ridiculous, but it's really frustrating. He could have just left his family, could have happily gone off to the woods, gone and lived in his bunker. Obviously, they'd have been sad that he'd left them, but that could have been it. He could have tried to convince them about the impending doomsday event he was planning for. He could have utilised the bunker to keep them all safe. This is what I don't understand, and you're absolutely right. We're trying to... We're trying to apply logic again to somebody who is illogical, irrational, and you can't rationalise their behaviour. But it's a human thing, isn't it, for us to try and sort of make sense of it? But I can't I can't even begin to make sense of this because he thinks there's an impending doomsday. So he builds this quite sophisticated bunker in order to protect himself and his family. But rather than take them to the bunker in anticipation of doomsday he will decide to kill them all. So what was the point of building the bunker? Yeah, it, this is it. It's, it's just mind-boggling. And but it's, it goes back to what you've said. With this, this paranoid of the four yeah. profiles, this paranoia, it fits into extreme mental illness. So what you're seeing here is, is extreme mental illness, aren't you? So nothing that he's doing is actually going to make sense. And it gets kind of a little bit worse as well because the family often needed money and Lynette would make money stretch in an attempt to kind of make ends meet. But they were always kind of on the edge of struggling. Unbeknownst to her, Keller was actually squirrelling away away cash at the hideaway. So he's also kind of making things worse for his family. Yeah, and and also what does he really think cash is going to have a value when there's an apocalypse? Yeah. Uh, just, I mean, I can understand him using the family resources to fund the building of the bunker and draining yeah, and the family store, finances store food for that, and but guns and yeah, whatever. True, yeah. yeah, so it's probably not cash, is it, that he's storing there? No, he stored cash. He Actual did store cash. See that again, it just makes no is, sense. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. In a video that he made of himself in the weeks before the murders of his wife Lynette and daughter Kayleen, Keller talked about how he had made peace with himself about possibly having to take his life if necessary. So talking into the camera, a dishevelled Keller can be seen hiking through the woods. And in the video diary, he's describing how wet the winter had been, how he was waiting for the weather to change so he could finish supplying his bunker. And at one point he says, finally do what I have to do. Get it out of the way. At this point, I don't know what's going to happen. I may get caught right away. Basically, if I get caught, I'm just going to shoot myself. Could be done in two weeks or three weeks, I don't know. Keller didn't specify what he had to do, but he knew police would be looking for him after he did it. And he also suggested that he had no other choice, saying, I don't think anyone knows where I'm at, but if they put it together, at this point, I have to take that chance. I do have my escape, and that's death. And at that point, he laughs and he says, I can always shoot myself, and I'm okay with that. So, He's not specifically in any of his videos said what he's going to do, but kind of knowing what comes next, it's clear that that's what he's alluding to. The thing that he has to do is to kill them and go on the run. Yeah, and he, yeah, that's it. He's saying that he's going to be on the run. So he's, yeah, alluding to the fact that he's going to have committed a criminal act. And yeah, it doesn't take a scientist to work out that he's planning on killing his family. It, in a weird way, it, You might feel differently, Bethan, because we quite often come at these things with different views, but I feel really sorry for him because I think this is a man with extreme mental ill health that needs to just get on some medication. And if he gets on the right medication and gets the right support, then he could be back to his old self and fully functioning, part of society, protecting his family, just normal. And that's a missing link. He's not 
he's not presented to the people, the right people to get the resources that he needs. Yeah, I no, I do agree with you. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I yeah, really it's sad. do. It's so sad and I feel really sorry for him because if, but the, I guess the problem is, is nobody would have ever spotted this. Even if you saw these videos on his YouTube channel in advance, I think this one of the videos was on the channel, one of the videos was found later. Even if you saw that, you wouldn't know what he was saying he was going to do. You would never even no. imagine he was going to kill his family. Looking back, you can tell that that's clearly what he's talking about. But And he is, like you said, he's able to present normally, so people aren't suspecting that he could be losing the plot, for want of a better term. But that's what's happening here. He's losing the plot, and his family are going to suffer the consequences of that. And they did. In the early hours of the 22nd of April, 2012, Keller shot both his wife and his daughter in their head with a silenced weapon. He then set fire to the family home. He also rigged the house with booby traps and gas cans in an attempt to get rid of any evidence. And then he fled to his bunker. Luckily, a neighbour saw the flames and called for the fire brigade. And thank goodness they did, because their actions ensured that the police shocked to find the bodies of the mother and daughter in their beds, were also able to recover photographs and videos from Keller's computer. So this explained just who was responsible for the murders. They found photographs of a bunker in the woods and they realised that was where their main suspect had fled to. If he'd have been successful in the fire, there's the chance that the electrical equipment had been would have been ruined for good and that they might not have it might have taken them a lot longer to work out who was responsible. And also they might never have found him. Who knows? They might never have found the bunker, that's right. Because yeah. obviously him being missing and them two being shot, he's going to become pretty high yeah, up in, this, number one in suspect, the list yeah. anyway. But yeah, if they hadn't have found those photos, if they'd been destroyed, there's the chance then that his videos may not have given enough clues. The cold-blooded nature of the crime shocked the community, leaving friends and neighbours unable to fully understand how the tragedy had unfolded right in their midst. And the police were on the hunt for Peter Keller. Hidden away in his remote bunker with a radio to keep up to date with the news reports, Peter Keller settled down and he remained hidden for about a week whilst the police worked out where he was. So they'd launched a massive manhunt, deploying search teams, utilising advanced technology to locate him, even needing to use a helicopter because of how dense the forests were, trying to look from above for any sort of signs. On the 27th of April, law enforcement authorities located Keller's bunker and a 22-hour standoff ensued. They were, of course, worried that the bunker was also booby-trapped, like Keller had attempted at his home, and they knew that he had weapons at his disposal. Gas canisters were thrown into the bunker in an attempt to kind of smoke him out and at some point Keller shot himself. So when the SWAT team gained entry on the 28th, they found his body on the floor of the bunker. They also discovered 13 guns and shelves of ammunition, as well as explosives, bulletproof vests, other weapons, money and food. The video I described earlier, one of the videos where he describes potentially you know knowing that he might need to take his own life that was then recovered on a camera that was within the bunker in the wake of the shocking crimes committed by keller investigators delved into various aspects of his life and they soon uncovered this deteriorating mental state the tale of peter teller is a reminder that darkness can kind of lurk beneath the surface of anyone's seemingly ordinary life it's a real sad tale for someone who for some reason felt that there was no other option for him I cannot get my head around the motivation, but I guess like we've said over and over now, it wouldn't make sense. There, that motivation doesn't make sense, but no. I'm the same as you. I feel really sorry for him that this is what he thought was was what had to happen and he died on his own in a bunker knowing that they the were right surrounding thing. him. And, and thinking that this was inevitable and the only option and, and that he had done the right thing in killing his wife and daughter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I do. I feel incredibly sad for him because I also think, you know, we all like to think, the majority of us, I know some people really do suffer, lots of people, but lots of us like to think that we are just healthy, mentally people that go about our day-to-day -day lives, present normally. And I think it's worrying to think that something could happen to us and we could we could do something really extreme that is out of character, whether it's this or 
something not quite as extreme, but I think that's a worrying thing, isn't it? You kind of think, yeah, that that could happen to anyone in a way. Mm. And I know it's a very different scenario, and I might have talked about this on the show before, but I can't remember if I did or didn't, but obviously postnatal depression and postpartum depression is a really, really big thing, and it it can be a killer as well. And it, it's such mm. a serious thing that anybody who's just had a baby, any woman who's just given birth could suffer from. So I remember saying to my other half, I'm going to tell you all the crazy things that come into my head because there, there's going to be lots of crazy things. I remember when my first Bella was born and I was just crying because she had really lovely ears and the doctor came in and was like, <laughs> are you okay? And I was like, I'm crying because she's got really nice ears. Look how perfect they are. And he went, oh, that's normal and just carried on. But I think if I'd have been crying because I was in pain, he would have been more worried. But he was like, okay. But I remember saying that to my friends as well. I was like, tell me all the things you think. Because then when I spot that something's not just your usual, you're a bit covered in hormones, <laughs> mm. we, you know, as a as a kind of, I don't know what the right word is, but as a community, someone might be able to step in and go, actually, do you know what, that's, that's going a bit too far. Do you want to go speak to your GP or something? But in this scenario, I mean, who's he really going to, who's going to pick up on this? Because actually, a bit of prepping and a bit of having a man cave isn't a bad thing. I love how you're calling this two-floor subterranean bunker a man cave. But that's um, what I'm saying. Is some, if he said to well, someone, yeah, oh, right, I'm building a little Sorry, bit of a bunker, yeah, yeah. you're probably yeah. going to think it's a bit of a man cave. You're probably He's not going to have taken someone there. No. Who's the most worrying. See? The most worrying... I mean, you described that perfectly about postnatal depression, for example, but the most worrying thing for me is that when people don't realise, when they don't realise that what they're thinking isn't normal and that it's wrong and that they might be suffering mentally. Yeah. So, you know, that's always the dangerous part of it. And what you were saying then sort of resonated with me, because I I don't mind admitting I've I really struggled in the summer with OCD and lots of intrusive thoughts and went on medication for that and it's really helped. But yeah, it's um, some of the thoughts that go through your head and I kind of think I'm pretty normal are just horrific and shocking and you kind of think well I'd never really do that but I'm thinking it I wouldn't do it but what if I did do it yeah so it's yeah it's just I can sort of see how your mind can get so warped that you're no longer conscious that it's so warped and then you really are on a you know hiding to nowhere and this is the thing because a lot of things are normal to a to a certain point so being overly cautious with cleanliness for example when you've had a new baby or a similar sort of thing worrying about your child's safety all the time but it's at what point does that get to be a worry yeah you wouldn't know that from an in from internally you just kind of go with well this is how i feel so it's the right Mm. thing you don't know so yeah I I know we've kind of gone off on a tangent here, but it does make me really sad that he couldn't have opened up to somebody who could have said to him, do you know what? Let's focus your amazing skills in a different way. Mm. Or or someone could just say to him, do you know what? What you're thinking right now isn't actually normal. That's not going to happen and we Mm -hmm. can help you make sense of it in your head and Mm -hmm. why you're going down this rabbit hole. And I, I think that's, yeah, that's, that's why I feel so sad that most of us can sort of see when it's coming or see that it's not rational and he wouldn't have seen that at all. I feel like I've no. had way too much sympathy for him, but I, I do feel sorry for him. I feel more sorry for his wife and daughter, but I do of feel course, sorry for him. Yeah, and her, you know, the the families of them both as well, their loved ones kind of trying to put together what's happened. It just, I can't even begin to think how they must have felt knowing it was somebody who they'd sat around the dinner table with someone that they'd had at family events that someone they'd known for most of their lives and trusted because he was their brother-in-law slash son-in-law whatever yeah Hmm. in a more recent study carlson et al 2019 carried out a comprehensive literature review within the peer-reviewed research published on familicide so they examined 63 research papers which covered 67 studies from 18 countries published between 1980 and 2017 
including familicide cases where the offender killed their current or former partner and at least one child. So I know that's quite in-depth, but this is kind of where this was coming from. And in almost all of the cases, the offender was male. In around 50% of the cases, the offender also took their own life after the murders. Problems in mental health, relationships and physical health were frequently noted across the cases that were studied. In most cases, the offender lived within the same household as all of the victims. And in agreement with previous studies that have been done in this case, problems in a relationship, a breakup and financial problems were prevalent within the families that were involved. Within this literature review, two types of familicide emerged and this now kind of does give us a little bit more information as to the psychology behind the crimes. So they call them the two different types as the despondent type, so the despaired offender who kills as an extended suicide. So this offender kills the family whilst telling themselves that they are doing this for them. And that description really helped me understand a little bit more of what's going on with Peter Keller. He possibly rationalised this to himself, as in I am removing them from the pain of this world that I've got such paranoia about. Yeah, and it kind of goes back, I think, to the primary motivation being his own suicide and managing the fallout of his suicide by taking his wife and daughter with him. Yeah. And then the second is the hostile type, so the jealous offender who is motivated to kill their family out of jealousy and for revenge, the primary victim being the spouse. So both types, it was concluded, have a sense of ownership over their family, although they have different motives. The despondent offender possibly believes that the family would not cope without him if he just kills himself. Um, The offender may even see this as their own sacrifice for the family as well. And then the hostile offender is motivated, motivated by jealousy, may believe that he has the control and can make such a decision for the entire family because he is in control. So that's what his decision is, is to take them all with him. So a more recent case that took place in 2018, which I do feel fits into that second category, is the murders of Shannon, Bella and Cece Watts, along with Shannon's unborn child. But unusually... The killer in that case had no intention of taking his own life. And obviously this is this is the case that we're talking about with Chris Watts. That is such an interesting point though, Bethan, isn't it? Because he didn't intend to take his own life. No intent of that, no. So there's a really well-made Netflix documentary about this case, which is called American Murder, The Family Next Door. This includes home video footage of them having a very happy family time and Watts is acting like a loving father and it really shows you the opposite of what he truly was which is this like evil monster because you see him playing you know really Mm. being that role of a happy family man yeah all american soccer dad family man yeah and it was all a facade yeah and actually kind of similar to that there's a really good youtube documentary that's been made about keller And it shows some of the home movies as well. And I always think that that just, it hits you harder because you really make these people real. The victims become more than two-dimensional people that you don't know, more than names that you get to know. You can see them and see them alive and doing normal things. And I don't know, it's just... No, I I get it. There's just something about it. It's the same with CCTV and the lead up to... A murder, for example. Yes, so we talked, talked about, about that so much, haven't we? Yeah. And we talked about, you know, the morning before she was assassinated on her doorstep, she was running errands and she went and bought, I think, some paper for a fax machine and she's caught on CCTV. And it's just, it, it's like being a fly on the wall on that day or in the run up to those, the, the events that are going to happen. And sort of seeing that person really normally like we are when we go out and about, but we know what's going to happen. And again, I think it just makes us think this could happen to us. We're normal. We do those kinds of things. Our family is like that. And then you sort of think, and wow, how did it come to this? Could that happen to me? That's how I feel. I'm not everybody would feel Mm. like that, but it always just, yeah, it's, I think you said it, you know, it's so relatable then. Yeah. 
At the time of this case in August 2018, Chris and Shannon Watts had been married for almost six years. Their daughters, Bella and Cece, were four and three years old, and Shannon was 15 weeks pregnant with their son. Watts was having an affair with a co-worker, and he wanted a way out of the marriage, so he spiked Shannon with OxyContin in an attempt to end her pregnancy. Um, Secretly, you know, he was trying to do this because he felt if she wasn't pregnant, there would be more of an opportunity for him to get out. I think he felt rather trapped by the fact that she was pregnant. And when he and Shannon had an argument about their potential separation, he began to think that killing his family was the only option. She wasn't willing to kind of just separate and give him everything he wanted. She was going to have her own terms and she was going to stand up for herself. Shannon and the girls were last seen on the 13th of August 2018 and when they disappeared Watts gave a series of TV interviews pleading for information about them and those interviews have become infamous in true crime circles. Many people believed right away that he had something to do with this because you could just see he was putting on an act of someone who was, was worried yeah it was just strange behavior and a lot really, of it's really odd is it the officer's body cam footage that is used in that documentary yeah. that you talked about yeah. yeah so you see him don't you at the neighbor's house when they're watching yeah. something on tv i can't remember what it was but yeah he just looks really shifty is the only word i can think it's to a describe good word it. yeah What had actually happened is absolutely harrowing. So Watts attempted to smother his young daughters as they slept in their beds. He thought he had killed them. He then went through to Shannon and an argument ensued. He ended up killing Shannon by strangling her. And at some point, the two young girls had recovered enough and they came through. He then realised he hadn't managed to kill them. He told his daughters that their mother was sick bundled them into the car in the middle of the night and he drove them and Shannon's body 45 minutes to a remote oil field that he knew about from work. I do really, really struggle with the specifics of this case, probably because, mm. you know, I've got daughters of a similar age. Of course, Bella is called Bella and she is literally four years old. So I can't go into loads and loads of detail. And I think that's why I've always struggled with covering this as a full episode because... Mm. There's so, so much information, but the documentaries and news reports are out there. There's loads of ways to find out more about this. Um, And like I said, that documentary is very, very well made. It's a really good case study of this whole, whole sad tale. So Chris Watts buried his wife in a shallow grave. Then he killed the girls and he put their bodies into oil tanks. And they were discovered on the 16th of August. So Chris Watts was charged on the 21st of August with three counts of first-degree murder, including an additional one count per child, which was cited as death of a child who has not yet attained 12 years of age and the defendant was in a position of trust, also unlawful termination of a pregnancy, and three counts of tampering with a deceased human body. So the police didn't buy his defence that he had walked in on Shannon killing one daughter, that there was the lifeless body of the other sister nearby and that he'd kind of strangled her in a rage about what she'd done to their children. I mean, it's awful, isn't it, that he even Mm. tried to put that out, that the mother would have done this? It is, because it happens. That does happen. Mm -hmm. And that's been reported. There are case studies where that's happened. So, yeah, yeah, he's kind of saying this is plausible. This this is a mother with postnatal depression who has just flipped and killed her daughter and is about to kill the other daughter so completely besmirching her her reputation post-mortem yeah but the police didn't believe this they had evidence that suggested otherwise and they soon found out about his secret affair with his colleague nicole kessinger chris watts faced with the evidence against him pled guilty on the 6th of November 2018 so he was sentenced to five life sentences three consecutive and then two concurrent for the first five counts without the possibility of parole. And then he was also given an additional 48 years um, as well for the unborn baby and tampering with the bodies. His videoed confession was released in which he told the police everything that he had done to his family. And the other quite scary thing in this case is how Watts had no history of domestic violence, no criminal record, 
Shannon had confided prior to the murders about how Watts had become a bit distant, and of course they had the argument about separating, but she never would have imagined that he could kill his pregnant wife and their two young girls. He, he'd never been violent, and suddenly he could do this. Hmm. I just weirdly suddenly remembered, and it's, it's featured in the documentary, that he started really working out, didn't he? And got, you could see this physical transformation in him from this kind of slim, some might say weedy guy, typical kind of normal guy, to this really like buff guy, wasn't he? Because of, I think yeah, because, of because he was of having the affair. affair and yeah. And it was it like, was it was quite a dramatic transformation. It? Yeah, it was. It really was. Just oh, so cringe, isn't it? I just. It is cringe, yeah. It's really kind of creepy, like you're having this affair and then you want to become this like better version of yourself. It's so cliched, yeah. So cliched. And again, I struggle with the motivation here because Watts wanted out of the marriage to be with his secret girlfriend. But in his own admission, he killed Shannon because when he said he wanted to separate, she threatened to take the children with her. Surely if he wanted a clean break, this was his opportunity. And and also, I think, was it Nicole, the the woman that he was having the affair with, yeah. I'm sure Nicole would have been quite happy that the kids were out of the picture. Do you know what I mean? So she'd have been quite happy that Shannon had primary custody of them, if that was the case, and she was free to be with Chris. So, yeah, it doesn't make sense again. Both of these cases do leave me with more kind of questions than answers. But with Keller, I feel really sorry for him. I actually feel some sympathy for his kind of situation and how he felt about the world and the way the world was going because I kind of understand his motivations a little even though I don't fully understand why killing his wife and daughter was going to be any sort of help whereas with Chris Watts I just I don't because there's so many other things you could do you could just divorce her, which is he must, shit, he must but it have, happens day in, day out. Of course it does. He must have just been a psychopath where he couldn't, he just kind of saw things really logically that I need to eradicate them, get them out of the picture so that I can please myself and do what I want to do. And this is how I can best go about this. And obviously he then doesn't feel any empathy for what he's, what he's going to do to them. In the majority of familicide cases, the killer has a history of or has shown symptoms of depression. But the concept is one that most people struggle to understand because many of us have faced problems or difficulties in our lives. Many of us have had depression or, you know, anything. But what makes one person decide to kill their family as a result? I needed to finish the episode on a positive everyone knows me it had to happen so Lynette Keller's mother sister and twin brother announced at a news conference following the murder of Lynette and Kayleen that all of the money that had been found in the bunker Peter Keller had crafted and hidden in plus assets from the Keller estate were going to be used to establish a scholarship fund in Kayleen Keller's name they said the scholarship will be for female students interested in attending the DigiPen Institute of Technology in Redmond, where Kayleen dreamed of going to further her education in video game design. And they told the press that the scholarship fund was the best way to honour her, which I thought was really lovely. Yeah, that is that is just, I hate to sort of sound like patronising, but that is the best thing they could have done, isn't it, in her memory, that there will be somebody that can go on to study there and almost live the life that she was deprived of living but they'll mm. get the opportunity to do that because of her and yeah. the money that will afford their their education yeah well so that was we fascinating a real a real deep dive into family annihilation i've learned loads of things there so yeah let us know your thoughts too uh please do get in touch in all the usual ways we're on Mm -hmm. instagram facebook and if you're a patreon supporter you can also comment below uh the post including this episode and this is our penultimate episode before our mid-season christmas break isn't it it is so we're back next week and then we're not going to be back until 2024 which just sounds a bit ridiculous but it it is very early january 2024 it is only a two-week break i promise yeah i think we're back on the third of january is that the right date 
I think it is. Yeah, it's the yeah. third. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll be in your ears next week. Are you going to do something a little bit lighter for us? Fuck no. God knows. Um, Probably not. No, because I just always think of that awful case that uh, we, I think it was a crossover with Twisted Britain. Oh, what, which uh, happened at Christmas. It happened at Christmas and it was the worst case we'd ever fucking covered. Oh my God. It, of a it, guy being yeah. tied to his own bed and left to starve for 10 days. In London, Absolutely while horrendous. someone went and used his cash card, so and his uh, sister's trying to ring him and he couldn't answer the phone. Oh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Merry Christmas. Mm. Um, we'll see, Beth, and won't we? Um, yeah, thank you for listening. If you are able to support us on Patreon and you want to, as I said earlier, there are loads of bonus episodes available for you. All you need to do is head over to Patreon.com/slash Seeing Red Podcast. And honestly, your support there is just, it's making a phenomenal difference to us, isn't it, Betham? It genuinely is. This is, you know, a little thing that we just decided to do, the pair of us, when we were at work one day. And we never thought that it would get to the point where we could genuinely be doing this week in, week out with people following us and supporting us. It's really, really special. I can't yeah, think of a less wanky word for it. <laughs> That's a wanky word, but it is honestly it is so true. And we've just we've just had Spotify wrapped, and I think it showed we've been listened to in nearly a hundred countries, which is amazing. And I know lots of you have been here since day one. So, uh, whatever way you supported us, whether it's telling somebody about the show, following us on Instagram, whatever it is, we are so so grateful. So, yeah, here's to the next five years, hopefully. Yeah. Oh, no, I hope so. I'm sure. I'm, I'm not going be. anywhere. You're stuck with me. <laughs> we'll see you next week then uh, for the mid season finale. We'll see you Ooh. then. See you then, guys. Bye. Bye. Hi angels, it's your girl Louise Rumble and I'm the host of the Open House Podcast. Therapy quite literally changed my life and sent me straight into my hot healing girl era. Now each week I share my story, the good, the bad and the downright juicy and chat with some of the world's best therapists, psychologists and wellness experts. From love, sex and dating to attachment styles, nervous system regulation, wellness hacks, hormone balancing and more, nothing is off the table. I've emptied my bank account on therapy and healing so you don't have to. So if you're ready to leave the past in the past and build the future you've always deserved, me and my favorite experts are waiting for you on the Open House podcast. Listen now wherever you stream your podcasts and I cannot wait to meet you.